Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Today's sermon is called One Thing. Look at somebody beside you and say one thing. One thing. Look at the next person beside you and say one thing. Have you come to church at all if the preacher didn't make you say something to the person next to you? We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you want to go ahead and get there, we're going to dive right in. The verses will be behind me on the screen, but if you'd like to turn there, I want to give you a moment to do that. Luke chapter 10. Um, This is a, a story that probably is familiar for most of you in the room. If you've been around church, if you grew up in church, this is probably not going to be foreign, and it's really not that long of a text. There's five verses here that we're going to read and that we're going to kind of dive into and figure out what this says to us today. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Luke 10, 38 says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much today for your word. God, we thank you that it speaks directly to our heart, that it divides the truth in our lives, God. And I pray that that truth would just be so evident to us. We recognize your presence here today, God, and we just ask that you would speak to us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I enjoy eating. I like food a lot. Anybody else, you like food, you like to eat? Yes, I, I see a couple hands. Uh, there, there's more. There, it's sinking in what I'm asking you. Yes, we, we like food. Uh, I enjoy food a lot. I'm really good at eating it. Um, terrible at making it. I can't cook to save my life. Now, I don't know if you want to say I can't cook. Some of you will, will kind of come back. Like, if, you, if you're a challenger, you'll be like, it's not that you can't cook. It's just that you don't cook or you don't try to cook. I don't care. I don't do it. All right? So, I don't cook. It's not something that, I, that like, I learned when I was growing up. I've not learned it at any point in my life. In my single years, it was rough, guys. It was a lot of ramen noodles and mac and cheese and all those things, and, and it, was, it was tough. And so, But I, I love food. I love good food. I love to eat. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, the sovereignty of the Lord, he has given me my wife, who is an amazing, amazing, amazing cook. Everything, seriously, every culinary creation that she has attempted has worked except for in the 14 years that we've been married, two things, am I right? Two things have not been good, and that was like in her first year of marriage, she was experimenting with some new recipes, but I mean, this woman can cook. And I'm not saying this just to try to get some brownie points today. I'm serious. If you've tasted her cooking, especially if you let this girl cook Italian, forget it. It's over. Like, I am going to be stuffed. And so I've always enjoyed her cooking. But it was clear to us early in our marriage that she was going to be doing all of the cooking if we were going to be eating at all, right? I knew I had nothing to contribute. I can boil water and kind of slide the pasta into the water and then hope it turns out okay. Um, I, I can, you know, he, you know, that's about it. I can scramble eggs. I can scramble eggs. Um, that's it. That's literally it. Uh, and then I get on the grill sometimes, but I, I, there's just nothing there. And so I wanted to try to contribute to the family. And so what I decided is we worked out this agreement. I volunteered as tribute. I will do all of the dishes. 
You cook all the food, I'll do all the dishes. I'm like, I am getting out way ahead in this whole deal, right? And so I get to eat all of the delicious food, and then all I have to do is clean up the dishes, which, to be honest, was a little selfish for me anyway, because she would not do the dishes right anyway, right? Like, there is a correct way to load a dishwasher. Do you agree with anybody? You, you are with me? You're like, yes, there is an absolute correct way to do it. And subsequently, there is a wrong way to do it. If you don't believe me, then your house is probably, your, your dishwasher at least looks like trash. Like, it looks like you just shoved a bunch of stuff in there and then closed it and hope for the best, right? There is a way. There is a system that I see in my mind, and I want it to take place in that dishwasher. My wife, she accesses more of her creative side when she gets into the kitchen, right? And so if, if that creative side starts kicking when she loads the dishwasher, it's every plate for itself. Like it, wherever it lands is where it's gonna be. But when she cooks, it's amazing when she accesses her creative side. When she accesses that, accesses that part of her brain, when she is cooking, she makes some amazing meals. Here's what else I have figured out though. When my wife accesses the creative side of her brain when she cooks, that also means that she uses every pot Every pan, every utensil, every plate, everything that's in the cabinets and the cupboards gets pulled out, gets used, and then this meal is created, and the meals are always amazing. But sometimes in those moments, after the meal is over and I'm stuffed and I've already enjoyed the meal, I go into the kitchen and I see this mountain of dishes that need to be cleaned. And I remind myself, I volunteered for this. This was my idea. At least I think it was my idea. You know how marriage works, though, guys. It totally could have been her idea, and then she made me think it's my idea. I don't know. But this is my idea, I volunteered to do this. And in that moment, I should be grateful that I just had a full belly full of great food, but instead my attention starts to turn toward, well now I have to do all these dishes and she's not even helping me. I completely leave out the part that I was not doing anything at all while she was slaving in the kitchen for hours. We leave that part out of our discussions and our disagreements that we have in our heads, right? And so I get a little frustrated sometimes. But if you know me, I am, um, and this is not something I'm necessarily proud of. Honestly, it's something that I'm trying, those of you that know me really well, you're going to think that I'm lying, but I'm really trying to rein in and pull back this part of my personality, but I tend to be quite sarcastic, um, and I, that, that usually comes out when I'm frustrated in passive-aggressive um, comments and actions. I know none of you are passive-aggressive, so you won't relate to this at all, but let me tell you what I do. Let me sell myself out right now. What I do when I get into the kitchen and there's all these dishes and all this stuff that needs to be done, and I, I'm wanting help, but I'm not, um, you know, apparently mature enough just to ask for help. That's really what being passive-aggressive is. And so I will just start doing the dishes, but I do them loudly. Anybody else with me? Like, you do them as loudly as you possibly can. I'm banging stuff together because, like, this is my attempt at saying, hey, hey, I, I want you to help me. Please come help me. Like, I'll, I'll sigh, like, really loud and demonstratively, like, when it's, I see the next dish. Like, oh, you know, like another pan. Like, I didn't know it was there before, but every time I pull another pan, it's like, oh, my gosh. So I make this big deal out of it, and I'm, you know, clanging things around. This is my cry for help. Y'all pray for my wife, okay? So um, this is kind of, you know, how this, how this shows out in, in my home and what, I'm, what I do. I'm trying to make all this noise. And one of the best ways when you're in your kitchen to make a passive-aggressive statement is to slam a kitchen drawer or door. Like, in those cupboards, for some reason, that just means something different, doesn't it? Like, you start slamming those things, it's like, okay, what's going on, right? Here's the problem. The good people that built our home also installed these slow-close things in all of our drawers and our doors, which are really, really cool until you want to make a point. Right? And so you go to slam that thing, and you're just thinking, like, this is going to be the exclamation mark. Is 
That's it. Like, you don't hear, what? You know, it's so disappointing in the moment. Like, sometimes you just want to, like, you know, make that statement. Sometimes you just want to, like, use force. Like, almost the same amount of force that, like, Pastor Rocky used when he squeezed Pastor Scott's thumb after he hit it with a hammer. Like, you want to use that kind of force to send home your point. Why would you do that? I trusted you, were the words that Pastor Scott said after that happened, by the way. <laughs> True story. But the slow clothes, man, the slow clothes get you every time. Like, I, a couple months ago, um, my wife and I were having a, uh, a talk. We were having a discussion uh, in our kitchen. Um, we were having a disagreement, you might call it. We were fighting in the kitchen, okay? We were having a fight in the kitchen. And so we were fighting in the kitchen, and all of a sudden, one of us, to make that demonstrative moment in their argument, just went to one of the doors, and it did that same thing, like, just nothing. And honestly, neither of us remember what the fight was about because we just started dying laughing. It was just like the most anticlimactic moment of any fight in any marriage history. But we do that sometimes. Whatever your chore is at the house, sometimes you try to, to, to you know, kind of drum up some empathy so someone will help you because in your mind somebody should be helping you because there's maybe a house full of people or maybe you just don't want to do the task at hand. And the story that we read in Luke chapter 10 in our text if we're not careful, we'll kind of gloss over it as this story of this one woman who was just really angry that her sister wasn't helping her out at a dinner party. But it's not really about that. If we're not careful, we'll, we'll kind of melt this down to mean like there were two different people in this house. These two sisters were very different from each other, different personality types. They were different Enneagrams. They had different strength finders, and they were worship style. They were just very different people, and so that's what this is about. It's not, it's not really what this is about. What the story is really about is it's about Jesus and his love for you and for me. See, it's about his desire to want to be close to us and for us to be close to him. This is Jesus' invitation to, as he, can, as he calls, the one thing. His invitation to the one thing that is better. And we find that one thing at the very feet of Jesus. And so as we go back to our text, I want to just kind of explain a little bit and, and expound upon this that we, we see the opening statement kind of Martha is inviting Jesus into her home. And we know that Martha and Mary are sisters. Martha is the older sister. Neither of them are married, and so they live together. And the, the older sister, Martha, invites Jesus over for a dinner party, and he apparently accepts. And what an incredible honor and privilege to literally have Jesus in your home. What an incredible honor that would be. However, what responsibility would come with that as well? And so Mary is start, or sorry, Martha is starting to feel the weight of that responsibility because, as you can imagine, there's a whole lot to do to make sure that Jesus enjoys the perfect dinner party. And then on top of that, culturally, there were a ton of expectations in that region, in that time, for hospitality and all of these things that were expected in those moments. And so Martha feels all of the weight on her shoulders to have this great and amazing time with Jesus. And so instead of focusing on God himself sitting in her living room, she's focused on all the to-dos and all the checklists and all the cooking and all the cleaning to ensure that Jesus has a great experience. I mean, this woman is literally, literally serving Jesus, but she's distracted from spending time with him. 
And while she is busy working and working and working and working, she looks up, and where is Mary? Mary is not helping her. Mary is not lending a hand. Mary is not even pretending to try to help. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, if we're not careful, we'll just kind of think that Mary was really doing nothing at all, that she was just kind of abdicating all responsibility in that moment. But when you understand the terminology and the words that, that Luke uses as he writes this passage of Scripture, there's a much deeper understanding of this. But before we get there, there's, there's this sibling rivalry that is kind of brewing at the heart of Martha and Mary. Now, I myself can only relate to this to a certain extent because I'm an only child. And, and I know every time I tell somebody I'm an only child, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I don't know what that means, but apparently I'm, I act like an only child. I don't know. Sorry or you're welcome. It doesn't really matter. It's who I am. Don't feel bad for me. I, I, like, and I, I actually made this choice. My parents, after they had me, couldn't have any more children biologically. And, and as I was an older kid, probably nine or ten, they came to me. They were willing to adopt. They said, do you want a brother or sister? And I thought about it for like five seconds. And I looked at all the cool stuff I had in my room, and I realized I didn't have to share any of it, and I'm like, no, I'm good. (laughs) We're good, right? So I I don't know how to relate to two siblings really kind of like battling it out. Now, God in his infinite wisdom has given me two children to be able to watch this from a bird's eye view. Y'all pray for us. And so I see this sibling rivalry in my home, and so I can only imagine what it was here for Mary and for Martha, because I'm, I don't have any brothers or sisters, but I would have been extremely frustrated at this moment, as I'm sure you could understand, because Martha is doing all of the work, and Mary is just sitting there at the feet of Jesus. Again, as Luke uses this, this term, the feet of Jesus, it implies more than just the geographic location of where Mary was in the house at that time. You see, this term was a very common term used in that time to denote a a disciple of a rabbi. Essentially, what would happen in the process, and this is a very short, condensed version of this, but essentially a rabbi would invite someone to follow them, a young student to follow them, and they would be their disciple. The word disciple now just kind of means that you spend some time with somebody that is more mature in the faith, and they try and teach you some things about Christ, and that is a a good definition, however. In the first century, this was an all-in type of decision. When someone became a disciple of a rabbi, it was selling out and following that person, being as close to that person all the time as you possibly could, listening to every word, looking at every action because you wanted to become like that person. You were basically making a decision to be around that person as much as you possibly could. And so when Luke says that Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus, we get this implication that she is choosing in this moment to follow Jesus. She's choosing to be a disciple of Jesus, which in this culture was scandalous because this didn't happen. Nobody, no women were called to be disciples. No women were given the opportunity to be disciples, and so it's scandalous on that level. But Jesus, as we talked about in our our series last month, he's not afraid to flip the script on all of that, right? And so he flips the script there, but, but Mary in this moment is making this choice to follow Jesus. It's not that she's sitting around being lazy, it is that she is listening to every word that Jesus is saying and committing to follow after him. She chose to learn from Jesus, she chose to be with Jesus. Essentially, when we say that Mary sat at his feet, we're saying that Mary chose in that moment to be in God's presence, because she was in the presence of her Savior right then and there. And this, when Jesus explains the one thing 
this is what he's talking about. When he says only one thing matters, it's being with him. That's what matters. It's being in his presence, unhurried, not distracted, choosing to be present in the very presence of God. This is the one thing that he says is better than anything else. The, the one thing that is better than anything that you could possibly come up with or anything that you could possibly do is to spend time in the presence of God. It's the one thing that Mary found, it's the one thing that Martha missed, and it's the one thing that we all desperately need, even if we don't know that we need it, is to be in the presence of God. And this one thing in life that matters is to be a disciple of Jesus. And we can't be a disciple of Jesus until we sit at his feet, and when we sit at his feet, we spend time in the presence of God. And even though God or Jesus, rather, is not here in flesh like he was as we're reading in this text where he was speaking these words physically and Mary was hearing these words physically. What happened is when Jesus was here and when he was crucified and resurrected, he made the presence of God available to all of us all the time. It is there and it is available for us to access. We notice it when we pray. We notice it when we come together in this very room and we are two or three gathered in the name of God to worship him, Jesus says, I will be there with you. God's presence is here with us when we come together in community under one name, under one Lord, under one Savior. His presence is here. We, we realize that. We recognize that in those moments. When we read God's word, there are times when we recognize the presence of God. There are those moments that maybe you didn't even know what was happening and you couldn't explain it, but there are moments when emotion just overtakes you and you realize that something is happening and it's because we are in the presence of God and you're recognizing it because it's here all the time for us to access. And in those moments, we recognize it, we see it. And according to Jesus, that is the most important thing in our lives, is to be in the presence of God through worship, through his word, through community. And we know that there are these amazing blessings that come when we are in the presence of God. The psalmist tells us that in his presence is fullness of joy. Not just joy, fullness, all of the joy. In his presence is joy. In his presence there is peace. In his presence there is freedom. In his presence there is rest. Those are the things that we find. Those are the things that we're all seeking so desperately, and we find them when we recognize the presence of God. However, when I look around and I look at my life, and maybe you look at your life and you take inventory, so often instead of fullness of joy, we're experiencing misery, and so often instead of peace, we're experiencing anxiety, and instead of rest, we're hurried. Instead of freedom, we feel like captives. So why, if, if the, the presence of God is all around us and able to be accessed all the time, why are we feeling this way? And maybe that is how you feel this morning. Maybe you walked in feeling like that. Maybe you walked in feeling like joy is a million miles away. You could use a million words to describe your state of mind right now, and joy would not be in that list at all. Maybe you are feeling just worn out and you're tired. Not physically, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, just exhausted. If the, these are not the things that come with the presence of God, then we need to figure out our ways to recognize the presence of God so we can experience these things because this is the same exact place that we find Martha in this passage of Scripture. She's exhausted. She's not at rest at all. She's hurried. She's not finding a, a whole lot of joy in this moment. 
I mean, Martha is literally in the presence of Jesus, in the literal presence of God, but she is distracted and she's worried. I mean, Jesus is literally home, at her home, yet she's not experiencing any of those positive byproducts, the joy, the peace, all of those things that come with the presence of God. And I think the reason that is is because she's experiencing proximity, but she's not experiencing the presence of God. God, Jesus is there. He's in the house, as the singer Carmen did a song about a long time ago. If like four people got that reference, but it's worth it for those four people, am I right? <clears throat> he's there. He's in the house. He's there. His literal presence is there in the house. She is so close to him. She literally invited him in. Her intentions are pure, but she's not making any space to learn from him or allow his presence to change her. She's washing dishes when she could be at his feet. And don't we find ourselves here more often than we probably want to admit in our walk with Christ? We find ourselves in proximity. We find ourselves near the presence of God, but we have not taken that step to allow him to change us, right? We have finished our Bible reading plan that day, and we can check off all those little boxes next to each chapter that we read, but the word's not really changing us because we just get right into our routine after that. We come to church and we sing the songs and we raise our hands and our intentions are good. It's not evil, our intentions are good. We invite God in, but we're not changed by his presence because we're holding something back. We serve on a team. We serve, shake hands, right? You refill the, the seat pockets or you sing on stage, whatever it might be. You serve on one of our direction teams here at DCC or maybe you lead a direction team and you're serving God, literally serving God, except you're not experiencing the presence of God because you're not having that joy or that peace or that freedom or that rest. We are in proximity to God, but we're not making space in our hearts and most of the time in our schedules to let him change us. Jesus is there in Martha's house, literally right there, but all she can see is what needs to be done. She sees the checklist and who isn't helping her with that checklist. So in the story, you have these two women, same house, same situation, same access to the presence of Jesus, very different choices. Mary chooses the one thing that mattered. She chose to be in the presence of God, and Martha did not. And so that's why we see all of this anxiety, all of this struggle, all of this anger, all of this resentment building up in Martha because she did not choose the one thing. So we find Martha so incredibly offended that Mary isn't helping her that she attempts to guilt her sister by getting Jesus to yell at her sister, essentially. She thinks this is going to go a whole different way than it actually does, right? Like if you're Martha and you, like hindsight's 2020. if I'm Martha, I'm probably just keeping my mouth shut and washing a dish, you know what I'm saying? Because she did not expect the answer, the response from Jesus. She feels justified. She feels like I'm doing the Lord's work right now in serving the Lord, and the least that could happen is for my sister to get out here and help her. And the response from Jesus, I'm sure, caught her off guard. As we saw in verse 41, his response starts out, Martha, Martha, when God says your name twice, buckle up. All throughout the Bible, when, you, when God uses your name twice, it is on. There is about to be some truth dispensed that has your life. Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me, right? And so this is, an, this is Jesus saying, I need your attention. What I'm about to tell you is going to change everything if you listen and apply. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary chose what's better and it won't be taken away from her. See, in this conversation, I, I don't see this as, as Jesus condemning Martha in this moment. It doesn't read like that. It doesn't have that tone to it. It's not Jesus kind of like, Martha, 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 how dare you? How dare you try to get me to get your sister in trouble? You should know better. He doesn't berate her. He, he doesn't try and shame her. This is, is really more of an invitation to her to live the better life. This is an invitation from Jesus to Martha to say, hey, this, this is accessible for everyone. Live in my presence. Come spend time in my presence. This is the one thing that matters. And as only Jesus can, he sees through Marcia's frustration and busyness as to what is really happening. Sure, she's upset and she's frustrated that her sister's not helping out, but is that really what's going on? No. See, with surgical precision, Jesus identifies and diagnoses the underlying issues in Martha's heart. And the biggest one that Jesus brings to the surface is that she's worried. She's worried. The Bible says she's worried about many things. She's worried about more than just dinner. She's worried about more than just making the house nice. She is worried about many things. And you see, worry exists in my life and in your life when we prioritize our problems over the presence of God. When we place our problems higher than we place our God, then that is when worry creeps in and starts to take over our heart. And worry is keeping Martha from being in the literal presence of Jesus in this moment. And worry keeps us from experiencing the presence of God in your life and in my life today as well. Because worry and worship can't coexist. We can worry or we can worship. We can worry or we can be in the presence of God and recognize that and see that. So I think the only question that we can ask ourselves to be bluntly honest with us because you owe it to yourself to be this honest is what am I worried about today? What, what worry do I have? Am I, worried? am I worried about a lot of things? If I was having this conversation with Jesus, would Jesus look at me and say, Andrew, Andrew, and you're worried about many things things. What are we worried about today? There's a lot to be worried about, right? I mean, like, if you don't have anything to worry about, just pull out your phone for, like, two seconds. You'll find something to be worried about. Like, the world is ending every five minutes, right? And so, like, there, there is plenty to be worried about. And maybe that's you. Maybe you, you see the news and you see what's going on, and there's fear that creeps in, and that turns into worry because of the, the COVID Delta Force variant or whatever is happening right now, or like the vaccinations or the po political scene is like, you know, it's just worrying you because you're afraid, like, if this person gets into this office, then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And then, you know, it's, it's just this fear and this worry that starts to creep up. Maybe for you, it, it's something in your home. Maybe it's your finances, maybe it's money, maybe that is causing some anxiety, maybe that's causing some worry, because you're not sure how you're going to make ends meet, you're not sure about your job. Maybe you're an employer and you're having a hard time hiring people just to keep up with the demand for what's going on right now, and, and worry is creeping in. Maybe you're worried about some relationships, maybe with your kids. Maybe your adult kids are, are living a life that, that you know they shouldn't be living and you just want them to come back to God. You're worried about them. 
Maybe your kids are still at home and you're worried about some of the decisions that they're making or some of their behavior. You're worried about, am I a good enough parent? You're worried about your relationship with your spouse or with your future. Or, there's a billion different things. And so if you couldn't think of something before I started listing, I'm pretty sure I got at least one for you. We get worried. And worry will absolutely keep us from experiencing and recognizing the presence of God that is available to us at all the time. Because when we worry, we convince ourselves that worrying somehow enhances our ability to control the world, don't we? We're afraid that if we stop worrying about this one thing, that something is going to go terribly wrong. If I don't worry about it, then it's all going to fall apart. If I don't worry about it, if I don't spend all of my mental space on this thing, worrying about this thing, then everything is going to blow up. So we worry as if we are still in control of something that is completely out of our hands. That's what worry is. We try to control something that cannot be controlled. I had an opportunity this last week to go bowling with our young adults, our, our Bridge Young Adults group. Our, our uh, event team put together this bowling night. And so we showed up at the bowling alley, and I hadn't been bowling in a, in a while. Like, it, it has been a long time. Good news is, if you haven't been bowling in a while either, they're still playing the same music that they played the last time you were going. So um, found that out pretty quick. So I, we were at the, at the bowling alley. It was a great time. Everybody was having fun. It kind of, you know, bowling kind of comes, like, it's like, it's like riding a bike. Like, it comes right back to you. But here's what I noticed about myself and everybody else in our group and everybody in that bowling alley just about. There's this involuntary thing that happens when you go bowling. And when you go bowling, and whether you're like granny style or whether you're like all the way into it, like, you know, with the shoes and the gloves and the whole thing, anywhere in between that, when you let that ball go, there is some movement that happens in your body that you hope translates into whatever is happening down that lane. Tell me I'm wrong, right? And so you, you just, and you want that thing to go a little bit to the left, and so you're just like, Right, like you, you have these movements or you wave your hands. Sometimes people talk at the thing, like it's gonna listen to it and be like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And then the ball is gonna turn and it's gonna move a little bit differently. But, but it, it's, it's crazy and it's fun to watch, but we all do it. It's this kind of knee-jerk reaction. Like we are willing that bowling ball to do something other than what physics is telling it to do, right? The physical properties we hope will change when my hip does that right there. That's what we are hoping and praying for in that moment when we go bowling. That's ridiculous, right? Let's be honest. It doesn't change anything. It's futile to think that we can somehow change the trajectory of a heavy object rolling down a lane. Because we can't control that. But how futile is it we think that we can control things that we can't control in our own lives simply by worrying about them? Simply by allowing them to live in our heads. Simply by allowing our worries to try to control situations and people that we cannot control and were not meant to control. You see, sitting at Jesus' feet means that we recognize he is present. Right here, right now, God is present. And we don't have to pretend that we control the universe anymore. That's what sitting at the feet of Jesus is. It's choosing to not worry about something I have no control over because I don't, and instead putting my faith and my trust in Jesus. So what do we do? When worry creeps in, because it will, when we start to get anxious about something and when something starts to crowd our thoughts, crowd our heart, and it puts some distance between us and being able to recognize God's presence in our life, what do we do? Philippians 4, 6, and 7, some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It says, do not be anxious about anything. 
But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The author is basically telling us, Paul says, don't worry, don't be anxious. Instead of being anxious, instead of worrying, take all of that energy that you have and pray about that thing. Give that thing to God. And the byproduct of that, when we choose not to worry and when we choose to pray instead, is that there is this peace that transcends our understanding. Essentially, it's saying there is this peace that doesn't make any sense at all. There's a peace that you can have in the middle of a situation that you're worried about that you should have no peace at all. Your life could be falling apart. Your family members could be struggling. You could be having all of these circumstances and situations in your life, and there is a peace that comes from God that you don't understand. There's a peace that comes from God that the people around you won't understand either. And that is what happens when we give our worry to God. So don't worry. Don't worry, not, don't worry because there's nothing to worry about. There's plenty to worry about. Don't, don't worry because Bob Marley told you don't worry, you know, every little thing's going to be all right. Don't not worry because of that. Don't worry because what it does is it starts to distract us from the very presence of God. And that's what Jesus diagnosed in Mary on that, that afternoon when he was having dinner there. He said, your worry is what is keeping you from me. And there's only one thing that really matters, and that is being in my presence. Because God's presence may not change the situation you're worried about, but I promise you it will change you in that situation. It may not change the circumstances, but it's going to change you. When I am worried, what I find that I try to do is I try really, really hard not to worry. And then what that ends up doing, it causes me to worry more because I'm worried about the fact that I can't not worry anymore. And so it's just this kind of spiral out that happens to us when we try in our own strength to choose not to worry. But instead of feeling like our responsibility is to try harder not to worry, what if we recognize that God's presence is all around us and we choose to sit at the feet of Jesus instead? What if, what if we take all the pressure off of ourselves to figure out all of the situations that we are dealing with in life and choose instead to sit at the feet of Jesus? What if we choose to just submit all of those things that we're so concerned about at his feet? Because he's in control anyway. So my question remains, what are you worried about? Are you worried about many things? Is there something that has gripped your mind and gripped your heart? And it has caused this rift between you and being able to recognize and see that God's presence is available to us. And that is the most important thing, is the one thing that really matters. My challenge to all of us today is to leave that at the feet of Jesus, to give that to the one who can control it, to get out of the kitchen, get at Jesus' feet, because it's the one Thing that's better than everything else. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.